Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns. I'm Simon Kutis and I'm joined by my co-host Ollie Kune. Welcome back to the show, everyone. And it's an absolute privilege to be joined by Jason Eubanks. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks. Appreciate you guys having me. Oh, well, it's an absolute pleasure and honour to have you on the show, Jason. By way of an introduction, Jason, you're currently CRO at Harness, where you've helped them grow ARR by 10,000% in four and a half years, reaching a valuation of 3.7 billion in just six years. Harness was obviously founded by Jyoti Bansal, who is also behind the amazing success story, which is App Dynamics. And we're genuinely excited to tell your story, Jason, because your personal trajectory is just astonishing. Your rise to executive leadership is enviably rapid and you've taken leadership roles within the first 10 years from when you first joined the industry as an individual contributor. And you've been part of some amazing success stories such as Twilio and Meraki. So Jason, take us right to the beginning. Where did it all start for you? Sure. Uh, my first, the very first software job, is that what you want to know? <laughs> I don't know. Is, is there anything interesting before? <laughs> uh, most of which we don't want discovered on the internet, most likely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, look, I was, I was fortunate enough to get into software directly out of, uh, directly out of college. In fact, I accepted uh, a job with a boutique consulting tech firm about seven months before I graduated my senior year of college. Uh, as luck was have it, I showed up to the first day of work to find the, the signage being taken down and a CA logo being put up in its place. Uh, so in that time that I was finishing up school, uh, CA had come along and, and gobbled up some consulting firms and, and uh, that was one of them. So I started you know, right away in, in software. Uh, initially, because of that acquisition, on the services and consulting side in a technical role uh, and focusing on network and security assessments, uh, things like that. Went on from there to pick up the CA technology stack and, and move through the services side of the house over to pre-sales, interacting with customers, uh, and then finally into sales and sales leadership. Yeah. So uh, from, from there, I, I'd been there, I stayed there about 10 years and uh, was recruited then into, into BMC. Uh, so about 2009, late 2009, I showed up in Miami to a, to a BMC SKO <laughs> and uh, found myself waiting across the hall from their main event space where I could hear all the loud music and the energy and, uh, you know, and sat there waiting to meet Scott Davis and Brian Kidder who were interviewing me as the senior leaders at the time of building out BMC's enterprise uh, sales teams, which was post-acquisition of Blade Logic, of course. That's where that's where John McMahon and, and Scott and all the rest of the crew came into to BMC's uh, ranks. So after I fumbled my way through an interview process with the two of them where they were uh, drilling me on sales process and pipeline generation and all the things that you guys have probably talked to many guests before me about here on this show, uh, I, I then was asked to go meet with, with John McMahon. And uh, that was, you know, that was a very interesting experience for me. And meeting, meeting John as part of that interview process has forever changed not only my career and my network, but also the way that I think about the interview itself. Um, you know, just really learning to interview for intangibles. And John was not the interview that I thought he would be. You know, I expected to get more drilling down on sales leadership and sales process and recruiting and things of that nature. And, and he did open up with a couple of those questions, but uh, after he got me into a rhythm, it, it kind of boxed into this rhythm around the normal interview construct. Uh, he shifted quickly and started asking me uh, questions that I just didn't anticipate. Things like, things like uh, you know, what my college GPA was. And uh, that immediately instilled panic in me because my college GPA was average at best. It was a 3.0. And uh, so I answered him without hesitation, but went on to try to explain it away and, and uh, let him know that it wasn't because I was out partying seven days a week, although I did have my share, fair share of fun in college. 
it was because I had had these three jobs while I was also um, carrying a full course load. I had switched majors halfway through the year from engineering or halfway through the journey from engineering and into information systems and, and uh, had to pick some hours up along the way so I could finish within four years. And he asked me why it was important to finish within four years. And I went on to share that I had, you know, that I was funding college myself. And, and he asked about that process of paying for it. And, and, um, and then I shared that I was the first one to go to college in, in my family. And so he kept digging, you know, and I, and I was thinking in the back of my mind the whole time that he's asking these questions of, how does this relate to my, <laughs> to my ability to build and lead a sales team? But what he was doing, you know, after, after we got through that process, the next thing he asked me was, was about my first job when I got my first job. And I answered, it was, it was in construction and I was 12 years old. And he basically stopped me at that point and told me that I, that I had the job that, that we were going to move forward. And then he went on to open up and share with me his rationale for, for those kind of interview questions. And he, he said, would you like to understand why I was asking his questions? I, I said, yes, I, I would. And he said, you know, the GPA question is actually not an intellect question. It's, it's a character question. And if someone were to hesitate or refuse to answer or act like they didn't remember, they're lying to you. And if you, if you can't trust them to answer a simple question like that, you'll never be able to trust what they're telling you on a forecast call. And so like, we could go on with stories like this all day, but um, it's a lot of fun. It was my first, you know, working, working with the, the team there at BMC and the leadership roles. It was my first exposure to the value-based selling framework and the playbook that all of you know so well. Um, so, yeah. I think it's a really, really important step because actually, you know, that was your very first time being exposed to, to the playbook. And actually, what's interesting is that you reflect now and you reflect to this day and you say, that interview changed my life, you know, and it's not because you first entered the, um, the, the community, you know, that, that playbook um, community, but actually it's changed your perspective about some of the fundamentals which actually underpin the power of this playbook, which is about finding the right people. So what's, what's the kind of the biggest impact? What's the biggest takeaway you took from that as a process and how have you been able to, to use that and how's that helped you you know, with the success and, and that amazing trajectory that you've gone on you know, through, through, your, through your leadership uh, career? Yeah, great, great question. I, I would say that, I mean, certainly I shared the, the first, the, one of the first takeaways, which is learning to, um, as, you, as you go out and seek to, to recruit and retain the best talent in the market, learning to interview for the intangibles and really weed through uh, potential hiring mistakes. And that process has, has served me well for hundreds and hundreds of interviews since. But the, uh, one of the biggest takeaways from that process is the process itself. You know, the learning to dig in and understand the data that ultimately form uh, the leading indicators of the business. So you're managing uh, the activity inputs and understanding the trend lines that help you see around the corner versus simply reacting to outcomes that have already that have already shaped up you know the, the yelling at the scoreboard versus really helping understand how to how to dig in and make each one of your reps uh, successful and optimize productivity per head and, and a big factor around that is not just executing a, a value-based selling framework process but it is in fact digging in and understanding the the leading indicators that are signals to where the trajectory that you're on, where the business is going, where the market's going, and what you have to do accordingly to shape the next six, nine, 12 months of execution, uh, maybe even years. And so I'd say that was one of the biggest takeaways. It was the first time in my career. You know, at CA, we, we were in the sales culture at CA, we became very, very good at slinging and negotiating big deals, lots of products, big install base, leveraging, you know, compelling contract events. And uh, so it was my first time really in learning the science around the art of selling uh, and that science of building and leading teams and running the business was, was my time at BMC. And I've applied it in every role since then. Um, you know, and you can't, I, I believe that you can't apply, you can't take it, you know, what you've learned in one place and apply it 100% the same way in the same context, every, every, every spot after that, every job after that. 
Um, but it has been the backbone of, of certainly my thought process and the way that I teach my leaders and, and also the way that um, I look at the business. And mm -hmm. we had to make some adjustments along the way. After, after BMC, I went to, into the startup world and was fortunate enough to, to work at Meraki, which was the world's first cloud networking architecture started uh, out of MIT by Sanjit Biswal, John Bickett, and Hans Robertson. Who, who are all off doing great things now at other companies. Um, they're, they're all multi-time uh, multi you know, founders. Um, but they were great partners to, to work with and learn from, and they had set up a fantastic, along with Andy McCall, who was running Worldwide Sales back then, um, they had set up a fantastic high-velocity, high-morale culture. Um, in fact, I remember the first day I showed up at Meraki, I got off the elevator and, and dodged a, nerd, a Nerf dart that was coming at me. Uh, so, I, you know, th that was an interesting picture, if you want to visualize it, as to how different the culture was between, let's say, a BMC, this, this big public software company with a rigid operating rhythm, well-documented sales process, uh, you know, intent on inspection, to getting off the elevator you know, seeing, seeing ultimately kind of a boiler room type of setup, a pit full of salespeople on headphones, uh, you know, taking calls, doing demos at stand-up desks, hot swapping SEs in, very little process. Everything was on the fly. It was happening fast. Nerf darts fall, flying around, footballs being tossed, you know, while, while they're on customer demos. And so it was just, it was, it was a completely uh, night and day contrast. And, I think that if I had taken exactly what I had learned in the, the sales framework, the leading indicators, managing the metrics, developing people, and, and then applied it in exactly the same way, which are all great things and, I, and have, have changed my career. But if I had applied it exactly the same way that we operated at BMC into that culture at, at Meraki, I'm pretty certain I would have been voted off the island within a couple of quarters, you know? So it was, uh, you had to adapt and, and really be aware of the opportunity in front of us, the product, uh, the different, the different personas and the buying methodologies that were already working before I got there. But at the time, the Rocky was about 11 million. And when I got there, um, and, and I was coming in as an enterprise sales leader and ultimately ended up running enterprise sales worldwide there over four years and that 11 million became 600 million for the company. And then we went from about 10% of that revenue or so on the, on the enterprise side to uh, 50%. So a couple million to 300 million for, for enterprise. Um, the rest of it was made up through the inside sales motion commercial. Uh, and it was just a, it was a great learning opportunity to see this high velocity motion and uh, but also a, a good chance for me to come in and take some of the principles and basics that we had, you know, skills that we had developed around leadership at BMC and, and insert them into that culture and, and build that, that culture, extend it around that, that process. You know, we've heard people being impacted by the, by the playbook, you know, they've moved to BMC or they've joined an app dynamics. They found a, you know, a sales motion that actually works um and lots of them go into the next organization and they feel do you know what let's just apply exactly the same um but what was it specifically that made you realize that that wouldn't work what it's a good question you know i, I think just looking at what was working so at the time that i was hired in for for enterprise to come in and, and build out the enterprise teams the part of the business that was functioning and functioning well was the commercial side of the business. That was commercial was defined at Meraki as uh, they were inside sellers. They were all based at a, at a hub office, mainly San Francisco, um, working shifts to cover, to cover every time zone globally. So even, even if we had global coverage on the inside sales team, it, it would operate out of San Francisco. So they kept this, this culture was very well ingrained this high, this high morale, sort of high work hard, play hard, high velocity sales cycle culture was was right was right there in front of me, and I could see it working. And it was something that I could see was in complete contrast to everything that I had just come from. And the way I looked at it was that that's different. That's a different segment, and that's likely not going to be a hundred percent transferable 
to the enterprise side of the business, which is employees uh, that was defined as companies that were a thousand employees and above. So it's a big market, um, but as you go up, of course, up segment, you get increasingly more complex decision-making and buying patterns within these, these customers. It was more heavily contested against the incumbents like Cisco and the behemoths. And so I knew that we would have to have some kind of process. I wasn't sure what it was going to be at the time. And I, and I knew that there was something that was working already that was driving 90% of the revenue for the company on the other side. And so I just set out to learn what they were doing in commercial sales that was working. And velocity was key to that. And so one of the first things I did was, was simply, um, well, start building the team. I only had a couple reps. Once we started building the team out, though, one of the first things I did was, was apply the principles around understanding the leading indicators of the business and just pull the data through, right? And so I let the data tell me what the process should be. And when, we, when I benchmarked sort of A-B tested a couple different approaches um, for a couple different quarters, what we found was that if we emulated some of the things that were working in commercial, which was to get product in the hands of the prospect immediately within the first meeting, we could get product in the hands of, of that prospect within 24 hours and get them signing into our dashboard and starting to play around with the software and, and ship the product. And we had a much, a drastically higher conversion rate than if we slowed it down and through a more traditional sales methodology where you go through um, a deeper discovery, a business value assessment, and then follow that up with scoping and tech workshops, and then follow that up with ultimately a hands-on product experience. And so we had like a two and a half X higher conversion rate in AB testing those, those two models. And so that, that really was me taking a principle that I learned at BMC around understanding leading indicators and allowing the data to inform us on, on what the enterprise sales playbook should look like at Meraki at that time. And so what we did is we applied the rest of, of the goodness that comes out of that playbook. You know, we, we, needed, we needed more pipeline coverage also through understanding the, the leading indicators mapped out the next six, nine, 12 months at our current pipeline creation trajectory and, and saw that we were gonna be short of growth goals. And so we fired up outbound PG Mondays and ran call blitzes and used the exact same structure that we had used at BMC to, to build a PG culture that was outbound. And that worked and that was transferable. But I did not slow things down in the initial product experience with putting a BVA in front of it or an ROI calculator or a second level, even second level discovery. And, and we modified that first third of the sales process to adapt and adopt what was working in the other side of the business and married together, you know, PG along with this high velocity motion that was working in commercial, transferring that into enterprise. And then we built out and instilled a med pick opportunity framework and still, again, then applying what had worked through the playbook uh, at enterprise sales methodologies and, and tested and tried and true, applied that again, uh, just reverse the order in some of how, how we taught and executed the sales process. Right? And so I, I, that's an example. That's the first one that comes to mind. But I would say, you know, one of the key takeaways from that is, is to just you have to be experimental. You have to be curious. You have to follow the data and you have to adapt the same way that you would, you know, as, a, as an entrepreneur, great founders test early market product fit through iteration cycles. I believe that the same approach is entirely applicable to, to optimizing your go to market model. It's, it's so interesting, Jason. You sound like a scientist. It, it, the, you know, the way that you actually describe, you know, what you're assessing, A/B testing, you know, experimental. I, I, I don't know whether that is intentional, whether that comes from your engineer, from your, from your engineering. Uh, you obviously changed your major, but you, you can kind of see that mindset of the science, and then you've got the artistry, um, and, and that really kind of it, it seems to really kind of help you compartmentalize and really kind of assess where you are and obviously how you can then how you can move forward so you obviously had a massive impact at Meraki tell us then about Twilio because again that was a that was a huge huge different uh, go-to-market motion as well so tell, t t tell us a little bit more about that yeah that's a 
it was an entirely different good market motion. It was an entirely different product, entirely different company. You know, so the rest of the Meraki story that led to Twilio, I'll start with that, was you probably know that along that journey, so I was at Meraki a little over four years, and halfway through that journey, um, Cisco came in and acquired the, the company for what back then was considered to be a very, very big multiplier. And um, and I stayed for a couple of years after after the acquisition and made sure that that our teams were on good footing and that the business would would live on and it's it's thrived um, i think it's been one of the most successful acquisitions in the history of cisco if not the most successful by growth and there was a day that came where where the three founders all left on the same day and the, you know the business is starting to change pretty dramatically we left cisco did a great job leaving meraki alone um, and then we got to marry together the breadth of the, the Cisco ecosystem and the, the strength of its brand. Uh, and so that was, that was all beneficial. The business was growing after we got through some of the bumps in the acquisition and integration. And, and for me, you know, I, I felt like that journey had kind of taken its course. I, I had never set out to work for a bigger public company than the one I came from or the two that I came for prior to. I I'd caught the software. Uh, bug in in my journey at Meraki and decided that this is what I want to do for the rest of my working days period and so I left I, I resigned uh, about the same time that the, the founders did and have great relationships with with them to this day and Hans Robertson was was a great friend along that journey and uh, and he introduced me to, to Jeff Lawson uh, founder of Twilio and uh, Twilio is well known, I think, for being the first, you know, sort of developer, viral developer, uh, PLG model that that really took off and introduced a pay-as-you-go framework for uh, for this big, you know, developer SaaS company. And, and, and Twilio is is an API company in the in the end and, and you know what we were doing back then at Twilio and how it got to first the first hundred million for the company was really through the success of serving individual users those developers that were coming onto the platform signing up by the way when I got there there were a little over 100 million um, I think it was about 115 million or so when I'm when I started talking to Jeff and, and ultimately took the job um, they they had 34,000 we had 34,000 inbound users signing up to the platform every single month the the it was in completely viral in its adoption across the developer ecosystem. Builders could come and get started with just four lines of code and and tap into the power of this cloud communications API platform and embed that that interaction into contextualized application experiences. You know, think about Uber or Lyft or OpenTable or whatever. But some of the things that from a from a a consumer perspective that seems pretty logical that you know on the back end Twilio is powering that that experience for you that ride experience or that reservation experience some of the places you might not expect to find Twilio were really in your your interaction with large enterprise brands like some of the biggest banks in the world when you're when you're dealing with their applications or you're going through multi-factor authentication a lot of that is is built on and powered by Twilio contextualized contact centers you're calling into a bank or you click out of something, uh, have a problem in an interaction on a website or, or, or an app, you might get dropped into um, to an interaction with a contact center that's powered on top of Twilio for that contextualized experience. And so it's a very powerful platform. At that time, 34,000 inbound users signing up every single month and getting started. And, and, and the business was built on the back of a long tail of those users. In fact, um, there was about 1.2 million users on the platform when I started around there, million, million two, something like that. And, and we, we determined a customer, we, we counted a customer as uh, any one of those users that paid $5 or more a month. And so you could contrast this model where you have tens of thousands of developers signing up, going through a friction-free self-service journey, starting to build something immediately on the, on the platform that are getting charged, you know, decimals, uh, three decimals in of a, of a cent, you know, per, per minute for some kind of volume interaction that's occurring on the back of those API calls. That's a wildly different 
journey than a, an enterprise sales-led software motion, right? And one of the things that I, I was brought in to do, I was, I was there, by the way, as uh, the VP of the global new business function. So I was brought in to build the new, the new business functions. Sales dev, inside sales, field sales, stand-up services, uh, you know, things, things of this nature. So it's all, all the, the, really the sales execution around acquiring new, new revenue. Um, and the first thing I did was just look around again, look around at what's working, right? So I conducted 50 interviews of, of many different types of roles and people at, at the company and, uh, spent some time with customers immediately. And I quickly learned that our most productive sellers in the business at that time, very early on, were the people that had been there the longest. You know, our top seller at that time had been in the business, uh, you know, I don't know, four and a half years, I think it was at the time. He was one of the first early waves of, of sellers coming in at all. And and we used to have this saying at Twilio, like, you know, with Twilio, it's really, to, to sell Twilio, you have to understand and help a, a prospect imagine the art of the possible. But if your entire sales ecosystem and your approach to the market is to walk in with an open-ended conversation and um, and start with imagining the art of possible, you know that's really hard to teach and scale to hundreds of sellers as you seek going from your you know 100 100 million plus to 500 million. You have you know, investing into that growth levers that you have more control over that you can be intentional about that there that ultimately we could um, build investment strategies around because we understand the unit economics of the dollar in and more dollars out that can be scaled across uh, across sellers and really augment the thing that was already working, which was the self-service journey and that viral adoption motion, right? And so my, my first charter there was to make sure we didn't kill what was already feeding the business, which was the self-service journey. And then optimize those tens of thousands of users that were coming in through contextualized experience so that we could be more intentional about finding what problems they were solving for or outcomes they were building on top of the platform. My initial theory was that a self-service journey doesn't negate the decision-making process that every buyer goes through. Meaning that, and this is, this is, this was one of my first reports uh, to the board after I took the job was that I, I didn't, 100% agree with the fact that people made the decision to use Twilio or not to use Twilio without human interaction. Twilio has to this day, one of the best self-service journeys in the business and the product is phenomenal. But the idea that we started, that I started with there though, was that all of this, this work that's being built on this really powerful API platform serves a business. And I thought these users are in fact just that. They're users of the platform, but they show up on Monday and they work somewhere. And when they build something for the for their employer on, on Twilio's platform, the thing that they're building serves their customers. And if it serves their customers, they're likely solving a problem or chasing revenue. They're either creating value or solving a problem. And if those things exist, then there's a decision process to be had. And what we wanted to do was insert ourselves into that conversation, supplement the self-service journey, not trade it off in a way that we could help them understand how to use Twilio, really accelerate adoption of Twilio by accelerating their interpretation of the art of possible. And then ultimately build something great for their for their business on top of Twilio, and, and how how we went about unpacking that was a was a really a, a very uh, intellectually curious journey. I would I would say, you know, I, I wasn't to be honest, I wasn't sure that that the learnings that I had that I had developed in, in my career up to this point were going to serve me very well or serve Twilio very well in this. In, in hiring me. So there was the moment very early on in this journey where 
I started to get concerned that this, this, I'm not sure this is a great match. And, and so I partnered up. So, so I, you know, I, I, I had a hypothesis that we could insert ourselves with intention into, into this decision process to use Twilio, but needed to understand more about the outcomes that these customers were driving in the use cases that they were building on top of Twilio. And to do that, I partnered up with, um, with Manav Carrara, and you may know Manav. Manav is now the chief growth officer over at New Relic. At that time, in 2015, he was the VP of um, VP of product marketing. And so Manav and I went off on this this journey. I know you're going to say it sounds like a data science journey, but we went off on this journey to understand what you know. Where are the patterns in a million users on Twilio? They're writing code, they're building apps, they're, they're serving their customers, we know that. What patterns pop off the page if you were to really sort of step back and look at that entire body of users of a million users? And then take that and contrast it against the same exercise in the sales pipeline. And what we found is that there were nine predominant use cases that repeated themselves, both in the user base, the install base, as well as the open pipeline. And you could take those nine use cases and extract it one level above that to five solution categories. In this exercise, Manav and I uh, defined these solution categories as if, if these use cases were attached to a problem that someone was trying to solve or an outcome that someone was trying to unlock, what would they pull up Google and search for? And through that, we grouped them together to five solution categories. From there, we were able to start understanding the personas for each of these solution categories. And ultimately, we took it from having to understand the wide open art of possible conversation into targeting in a very focused way, the personas, both user personas and buyer personas, of these five solution categories. At that point, we could then start to build sales enablement. We could build sales content. We could build ROI calculators. We could build use case specific demos that allowed customers to visualize the journey that they could go on to solve those problems or unlock opportunities. We, we built POVs. So we, instead of just throwing SEs and architects at an open-ended customer experience in the field, in the, in the buyer journey or supplementing that self-service journey if someone got stuck, we could start to be prescriptive and take the best practices around building Twilio for these solution categories and nine use cases within the solution categories and start to wrap it up with, with services so we could increase adoption once somebody made the decision to build on Twilio. We started then attacking and, and signing up and unlocking go-to-market partnerships with rev share agreements, service with, with uh, Salesforce and ServiceNow and, and many others that we could start partnering together where there was overlap and alignment and what how Tulio powered a, a use case or an opportunity that they shared in. And, and so, you know, we started through this process really building a go-to-market motion, you know, five different go-to-market motions for these solution packages that, that we could replicate and build marketing momentum around and build sales capacity around. And that once we achieved that alignment, we could start to apply some of the best practices of the, of the value-based selling framework and teach that to the sellers. And so that was, that was part of the journey there. It's, it's an incredible journey. And I was about to say, um, your next part of your journey is obviously taking on a CRO gig, but I think the way in which you've just described your your position, even though a job title of Global Vice President of Sales Services and Alliance, I think it's pretty clear that you were doing far more than just, you know, just that. And really it warranted a, a CRO title. Um, but talk to us, obviously, you know, moving on now, we've gone into Chief Revenue Officer um, over at uh, Mark Forged. Um, tell us about that journey and you know your introduction into that opportunity yeah so i was i was recruited in <laughs> you guys you guys do a great job by the way <laughs> thanks <laughs> you know, all, all you recruiters out there in the world i was recruited in to uh do that opportunity and uh once again had an offer had the chance to 
uh, meet a, a, a great MIT founder who was building out the world's first cloud-managed uh, 3D printers. And this is a bit of a deviation from some of the past uh, you know, opportunities I had worked on at this point, but it was really interesting in the sense that you know, it was disrupting a major, a major market. When I, when I um, look at startups, I tend to look at the three T's, you know, tech, TAM, and talent. You know, the, is there a big TAM where a lot of people care about the value creation curve that's unlocked through great technology? And I look for a tech founder that's a pure tech founder. Somebody that is is driving disruption through innovating and ultimately changing the status quo of that TAM in a way that you could follow on the initial innovation with multiple products and build a platform play around it. You know, my experience has been that if you can find an opportunity that fits that criteria, you de-risk the growth journey along the way, which of course allows me to keep my job a little longer uh, since, I, since I'm responsible for that. But it also just creates a lot of value for, for all of the employees and the shareholders along the way, um, because as you, as you invest in that go-to-market motion, you align on that opportunity, the tech founder is there continuing to the pace of innovation, then, then you get more and more product to sell and you can get more efficient as you grow um, and build, build a big company. And so I, I saw that opportunity in, the, in, this, you know, in this MIT founder, who was building the first, the first cloud-managed 3D printer. Not only that, he, he had developed IP around a hybrid material of carbon fiber and, and nylon. So they called it onyx. And he had this, this uh, material that was stronger than aluminum, lighter than steel. And he had all these patents around it and you could, you know, with these cloud managed printers, you could, you had this incredibly intuitive multi-dimensional design experience. You didn't have to, to, to go into CAD and everything else. And you could just hit print once you got through the design of a, any, any product, you could hit print anywhere in the world. And it was pretty cool. And that way it was a lot like the cloud managed opportunity at Meraki, you know, in the first cloud managed network architecture, and, and looking at the analogy or the parallels there, you know, I saw this opportunity to disrupt this multi-trillion dollar market in, in manufacturing ultimately over time. Um, now, we, in hindsight, we know that, that um, 3D printing has not disrupted the manufacturing market as fast as everyone predicted, myself included. But it, but it was a lot of fun and we, we had a lot of growth. And, you know, we went from uh, 12 million in ARR when I started there, came in as the CRO and built out the team from next to nothing. We had, you know, I think a dozen sellers all in with sales dev and sellers and channel people all in. I think it was about 12 people. I was the 71st employee and we grew uh, from there from 12 million to 80 million in 18 months and ultimately paved the way for the company to, to, to IPL after that. Uh, and so that was an interesting, it was my first official CRO title and a very interesting opportunity, you know, during my journey there, not only were we figuring out the sales motion, which was again, unique and different because of the market we were serving and then the, and the competition in that space, uh, the partner ecosystem that came along with the pro the company that was already there and the way they were distributing the product, but also it, it was a really interesting experience for me to dive in and get my hands on some of the other functions of the business. In my time there, I, I it was the first time that I had a chance to actually lead the marketing team and hire a CMO. Uh, we, for some period of time, had other functions of the business like FP&A uh, reporting into my organization. We had HR for a while reporting into my organization, real estate operations reporting into my organization. So, you know, it was really this, the, the CRO gave plus a few other functions that over time, as we got bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, we hired a CFO, hired a CMO and, and sort of shed those functions to put them right back into the right place in the org. But it was a great, it was a great opportunity for me to widen my exposure to different portions of the business. 
and then apply a lot of the th same things that had worked for these other these other go to market plays and grow the business quickly. I could go on and on about. Yeah, no, it's it's it's, 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 it's so interesting. It, it absolutely is so interesting. I, I, I suppose at, by this time you've obviously worked for different types of, of, of founders. But what's interesting is that your next gig, CRO, the next big CRO gig, which was Harness, was actually working for a different type of founder because obviously JT Bansall was the founder of App Dynamics, and obviously we, we know the formidable sales organization and the incredible trajectory of that organization, which was also acquired by Cisco. Um, so, so what was the difference working with a founder that knew the playbook compared to, to founders that previously hadn't? It's a great question. Um, so just for the, the I'll, I'll set, we'll pull this forward a little bit for your audience. So Jyoti Bonsal, as you mentioned, was the founder of App Dynamics. Um, Jyoti is an incredible uh, visionary when it comes to product and he's an engineer at heart. And so he is, he drives fantastic product innovation. Um, we started the conversation talking about my interview with John McMahon. John was an advisor to Jody as he was building out, uh, he was building out App Dynamics. <clears throat> my first day of leadership training after I took the job at BMC, this guy by the name of Dolly Rollick walked through the door and uh, it was, was one of the field, was one of the presenters from the field to talk about some of the principles around leadership at BMC. And, uh, and that was my first exposure to Dolly. He and I are friends to this day, by the way. Uh, and he was the CRO for App Dynamics, as you probably well know. And, and of course, uh, between John and Dolly, uh, Jody learned the, the enterprise sales methodology around the value-based selling framework with an enterprise-led motion very well. In fact, I would venture to say that Jody mastered that in his AppD days, which, which set up a fantastic opportunity for me as I got connected into Harness in the very early days. We were, uh, we were about a million in ARR back then. Again, I came in around 70 employees. And you know, we were, we were first, we, the product had just gotten out the door, only been selling for about three quarters at that time. And Jody had already started to invest and he, he saw early on, uh, he knew that the opportunity was there to service these big enterprise accounts and um, through what we were building in Harness with continuous delivery as a service, the first product of, of its type um, and sitting right in the middle of this, this log jam and the software delivery life cycle and automating that. And so he invested very early on. He, he went with, the, the unit economics uh, that you do as you start to understand the, the go-to-market model where he bought uh, for every sales rep that he would put into a region, he also put an SE and a sales dev rep to drive pipeline. And so I walked in again with a team probably in the 12 or 13 range by headcount, really small, you know, and he was like five reps and, and, and we had some regions that were sharing resources. So um, really small, but but out of the gates, it was the go-to-market model that was that we all know from AppD and, and the value-based selling framework had already been kind of set up. Jody at the time uh, would would dig into opportunities and the forecast on the weekends in Salesforce. And so it was the first time I had ever worked for a founder who was proficient at navigating the CRM and, and understood the sales process in a way that he could inspect the, the med pick execution of an opportunity the way a sales leader would. And then he would immediately start slacking me or texting me on a, you know, on the weekends. Hey, what about this? Why is this here? What's this? <laughs> just, how many POVs are we running? And just look at the, you know, we had dashboards built out. He was, he was doing a great job. And my, my opportunity was to come in and, and partner with Jody in, in what had already been started and really take it from there into a place that we could, uh, identify early traction, feed, feed that traction quickly and scale it. Um, I will also say that some of that, and I'm making jokes here about Jody hitting you up on the weekend with opportunity inspection, but the flip side of that is that Jody and I can have very fluid conversations. Jody understands the investment economics around go-to-market in multiple phases of a company's trajectory. And so 
I would say that, you know, for first time founders, often who are great product people, often they, they may not understand the vernacular of go to market. So what I learned along the way prior to working with Jody was that I couldn't go into a conversation with a CEO and first time founder and talk to them about the investment of building out go to market teams and how we scale it and ramp times and increasing efficiency through productivity per head and you know all these things. I, I couldn't do that until we had a common understanding of the words that were that I was using, the words that were coming out of my mouth, because they just didn't mean anything. It'd be like me walking into um, to an engineering standup and trying to keep pace with with their the the methodology and the vernacular around you know building products. And so one of the first things that I, I kind of learned over time was that you, you had to just sort of slow that process with your founder down and establish a mutual understanding of, of the common go-to-market methodologies, the vernacular around it, the roles involved in it, the, the KPIs per, per sub-function within go-to-market that you should expect uh, now and as you build it at different phases of having a scorecard of, of what good looks like as you grow and invest and, and really having a regular cadence for reviewing that and reading that out. You know, when I, when I started working with Jody, we, we skipped all of that. We had velocity immediately in our conversations because uh, by, the, by the third week on the job, we were building out a three-year investment model. We just immediately got to work on, on uh, setting big goals and backing into the investment it would take across all the go-to-market functions to achieve those goals, backing into our expected conversion rates at every step of the marketing and sales funnel, and then really just building out those, those teams and, and um, quickly iterating on, on feedback and observations along the way. And so, you know, that it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, and, and that would be, I would say that's one of the major differences in having a second time founder that's had the experience of building and operating a company around the, the playbook is it just, it just made it a lot easier to snap in and immediately get to the, to the big rocks of, of building out a company and through that partnership. If, if I may, Jason, I, I think, you know, what's really interesting is that to this point, you've worked with great technologies, you know, great products that have either almost sold themselves or they've had incredible market fit and you've been able to tailor, you know, to, 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 to adapt in order to kind of meet that. But do you think that a company like Harness, I know it is a fantastic technology, do you think you would have had that trajectory and got to where you are from a revenue and growth perspective without laying the foundations that you have and the principles that you have working so closely with Jyoti at the beginning? Yeah, so before I answer the heart of your question, it, it's much easier to be good at this job <laughs> when you have fantastic <laughs> products. <laughs> So we're clear, uh, but yes, um, it, I, I would, you know, Jody, Jody sets big goals. He sets audacious goals. In fact, the first, uh, the first time we talked about the trajectory of harness and, and the goals was that was in my second meeting with them. I, I, in my interview process with Jody, we really spent across four months. We had multiple interactions together, meals together, whiteboarding sessions together. By the time I showed up and started the first week at, at Harness, I felt like he and I were already on the same page because we, we had spent months aligning. And this, the first time he introduced his, uh, his path to the first 100 million in ARR was the second time I talked to him. And, and, he, and he set up the construct really for, uh, for, the, for the path that we're on now. And so I think there's a lot that goes into that. The, the short answer to your question is no. I don't think I don't think we would have reached these outcomes and grown this fast had I not had the opportunity to partner with someone like Jody. I also and, and, and a big part of that is is having a mutual understanding of of the framework and the go-to-market methodologies and the investments that go into it and and being aligned in the risk that we're going to take and and really being um, 
being focused on continuous improvement and iteration in that process and knowing that it's that it's not only safe to to fail or or miss on some of those investment experiments but actually encouraged you know if i if if i were to every quarter we sit down jody and i to this day four and a half years later every quarter we sit down at the end of the the last day of the fiscal quarter we sit down and talk about what went well and what what didn't and if i approached that meeting with nothing but great news you know he'd probably start to think i checked out or something but um we, we, you know, so it, that's all part of the, the ingredients for success, right? Not just the understanding of this go-to-market methodology, but the partnership between your product-led founder and, and the go-to-market leader, I think is critically important. And, and the, the alignment early on, uh, on big goals, like, you know, like, I mean, he sets big goals. I, I don't, I don't know that I would have set as big a goals for, for us as he did. But, but that's undoubtedly, you know, I, I got comfortable with them and leaned into them at every stop of the way. And that's undoubtedly what's driven the, a, a big portion of the trajectory that we're on. Um, so ha- having big goals and that's not just revenue goals. I mean, you, you know, we've gone from one product to eight, eight products that, that are ultimately capabilities of, of, the most modern platform play in, in all the software delivery lifecycle, competing against some of the giants in, in software. And so that that is true. Everything that I said said here today is true for go to market, but that mindset is applied at Harness, even in product innovation, in engineering teams, in product management teams. How do you, if you aren't in a situation where you don't have a founder that understands and appreciates go to market and understands the notion of slowing down to speed up. You know, what are the processes of educating those founders to, to really understand what the value is? It's a great question. So I, I would say that this is one of the biggest things that I got, that I got wrong in my transition from going, going from an enterprise sales leader, you know, third line enterprise sales leader running a big business to building the, the model that the business goes to market with. That's a, that's a different, you do have to, to hone in on different skills and different conversations. And, uh, at at first I didn't, I didn't appreciate that. I didn't understand. I didn't know that. And so, Going into Twilio is the first time that I really was participating in board meetings. It was the first time that I was sitting down with directly with the CEO without somebody, you know, uh, really there acting as a buffer in some of those discussions where we were, we were, we were openly um, having conversations and debating what the right go-to-market model looked like, uh, as you can imagine, especially in, in a company like Twilio that had so much success early on without uh, really a true, you know, sales framework or sales playbook. Uh, it, there, there was a lot of education there. And so I would say if you boil that down, and not, not just not just Twilio, the, the others, others too. And, and, you know, and that's true for Mark Forge. It's true for companies that and CEOs that I advise were participate uh, with an advisor or board observer kind of relationship and roles. I see this pattern across first time tech founders um, pretty, pretty widely. And so I think one of the things I would, I would say if, if I were to ask to give advice to a first time CRO partnering with a first time product led CEO founder is to just assume that that you're talking past each other. Just right out of the gates, assume that you're going to be talking past each other. Slow down, and the same way you run an open-ended, second-level, third-level discovery in a sales process, you have to apply that that mind, that curious mindset, uh, to your interactions with your with your product founder if they're if they're first time and they haven't had this benefit of experience like like Jody did at AppD. And the other thing that I think is important is to is to assume that the intent is aligned. You know, there's another big thing here. I think when you go from a sales leader role into an executive for a go-to-market, 
you have an, you have a mutually beneficial outcome construct right out of the gates, right? Your, your goals are the company goals. The, the biggest impact to your individual life as a CRO and the net wealth creation event that will define your family's future as part of investing your time into that startup will it be about the value that you help create for the company, not the value of your commission plan. And, and that requires a bit of a mind, a mindset shift, I think. And so, but if you can get there, you immediately have this construct of a mutually beneficial outcome. That's a shared benefit across you and the CEO and the other executives in the company that create this sort of safe space to have, to have constructive conflict and get through that misalignment and vernacular. And then the, the third thing I would say there is you have to assume that it's going to take about third of your time to get through those things. And so, you know, don't, don't get frustrated if you're a CRO and you're in that conversation, you can't allow yourself to get frustrated by the fact that you have to slow down and, and maybe even start with definitions of go-to-market definitions. And then have a, a, a great two-sided intellectual debate around personas and the ideal customer profile and, and really start there and then work your way back into the go-to-market execution. I want to give you the opportunity now, obviously, Harness, you, you are on still, you are still growing. You, you are still, you know, on the upward trajectory. Why should someone join you on the journey? Oh, I'm, well, <laughs> I didn't expect to turn this into a commercial for Harness today, but I love it. <laughs> we thought we'd give you the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. 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 Just, uh, Absolutely. You know, there's so, there's so many ways I could go with this, but if you just unpack the first, one of the first things I said to, today in this interview around, you know, understanding how to personalize your go-to-market playbook for the situation you're in, that, that all starts with just evaluating the company and the opportunity that that company serves, right? The tech talent team. And if we were to apply that lens, the way that someone would be making a decision, their decision criteria for which, how they're going to invest their time, which startup they're going to go work for work with and that's by the way that that is exactly how i see that and i tell candidates that all the time if they ask the question you know i i believe that every every employee that joins the company is an investor not only because they have equity but because they're buying that equity through investing their time and time is as we all know the, one of the most precious assets we could ever have you can't replenish it and so you should be making that decision through the lens of criteria that that are that have a high level of scrutiny and if we were to unpack that for harness being at the center of of that decision criteria you know let's start with the tam i mean the way we see the tam is is through the lens of developers and the reason for that is if if you or your listeners don't know what harness is you know harness is the world's first modern software delivery automation platform and and so we apply AI machine learning in context of an automation platform that unlocks velocity and control and efficiencies and introduces governance to the entire software delivery lifecycle. And that's from the time that a developer checks in code into a repository to the time that it's running in a production environment where that that company's customers are interacting with that code or that service. And there's teams that are trying to op operationalize the efficiencies around running those services in an environment where they, they can be efficient, right? And they can serve those customers with the least amount of downtime possible, protect their brand. And if you could do all that and give developers their nights and weekends back so that they don't have to frantically be worried about every time that they check code in and release a process, unlock innovation velocity for customers, our customers, Harness's customers, so that they can get away from releasing code every six months or every quarter, unlock velocity so that they can release code the instant that a developer checks it in, in an automated way without having to have teams and teams of people manually pushing something through. In doing that, what we, what we ultimately serve through our platform is those 30 million developers that, that 
right now have to sacrifice their family time to try to achieve innovation velocity that serves their, their customers, right? And if you think about that opportunity, so that's what we do, that's our mission. Now, try to put some kind of math around how big that opportunity is, right? There's 30 million software developers today. On the average in industrialized countries, those engineers make about 100,000 a year, right? So you do your quick math and you can quickly see that this is, this is a multi-trillion dollar opportunity to go affect the developer experience, the developer efficiencies, unlock innovation velocity so our customers can compete more or better in, in their segment and knock their competition out. We unlock a massive value prop that's only getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And if you look at what's going on with AI right now, you know, AI is enabling, further enabling efficiencies in, in the software delivery engineering process in and of itself, right? And this move from back-end engineering to front-end engineering, being able to attack full stack engineering efforts through the help of AI is actually, if you look at some sources in the industry right now, they, they say that there's gonna be a 10X increase in the number of developers in the world. Right now, 30 million developers only represents 1% of the world's population. And it has one of the highest impacts in, in your everyday life and the way that you interact with, with, with applications and, and the brands that surround you. And so if, if you could sort of release that supply demand problem on engineering and 10X the number of engineers in the world, Harness's opportunity only, it sits in the middle of that and only gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then of course you have the benefit of, of being part of, uh, of a company that's ran by senior executives that have uh, experience with multiple, building out multiple companies. Jody, of course, having a great outcome with App Dynamics, but uh, amongst the executive team here, we have experienced executives at every at every function that have, it's, it, there isn't a senior executive at Harness that's doing this for the first time. And I think that helps de-risk your journey as an employee. And then, uh, you know, finally, I would say that we haven't even started to, to unlock our full potential. I mean, our innovation velocity is moving so fast, going from one to eight products in just a few years. And, Every year we have new product roadmaps that, that go out and disrupt other startups that are companies as big as us that will just will be aligned with just one of our product modules out of the eight today, for example. Um, and then and then, you know, personally, I, I think that if you're in the go to market team, you know, one of the things I would also end this conversation around why join harness with is that we are incredibly focused on developing our talent. And I'm sure everybody says that, but you know, if I, I've already given you an example and pull on one of the things that we talked about earlier today is like the, the understanding the leading indicators and, and understanding those leading indicators as it pertains to the activity and the managing the activity as opposed to just responding to the outcomes of the forecast. If you were to take that instead of taking an approach where you just manage like the number of you know, new business meetings to opportunities to POVs to forecastable deals. And instead of managing someone or building teams that, that manage the average, go through the effort to really contextualize that in an individualized experience and build coaching and development for every single IC in the team around their personal conversion history and their personal opportunity, their strengths, their weaknesses and opportunities to get better. That's, that's one of our core objectives of my leadership team is to achieve that, not just the numbers, right? And so really are focused on um, optimizing the teams, the talent that have made the decision to join this journey in a way that they, they are better for the rest of their career than, than they were when they got here. 
you know, and we want to do the same thing for some of those people that are early in their career that join us that I had the opportunity of experiencing through many of the people I mentioned here today earlier in my career. Great. And it's also, you know, the rate at which you guys are kind of accelerating it is a genuinely mind-boggling uh, trajectory and you know, great, great um great great team and you're having such a, a great great success at the moment so i think this is the point where we obviously reflect on what we've heard today jason because um and i think there's a few things that really jump out at me right i, I think that the very first thing is that from the very beginning your very first exposure to to, to the playbook i think what it really unlocked in you was that very scientific um very kind of the, the scientific approach of really understanding and and, and, and and investing the time required to understand the right go-to-market motion relative to the, the what what really works for that organization is creating a very bespoke approach and even though in each of those organizations that you've worked you've had to adapt the actual specific execution, the, the approach and the mindset to really go and discover what works. And that scientific approach has really served you well. So when we talk about the combination of science and artistry, it's not about replacing artistry, it's about enabling artistry to exist within axioms which allow it to really have creativity but also effectiveness and and i think that that is really what 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 is you know that you really take away from from, from what we've spoken about and, and i think just a final thing it's not just about creating a repeatable scientific approach it's then putting an individual um approach and really being able to tailor it to the individuals within your organization in, in a in an individualized coaching enablement way which then creates the science the art and also the, the the nurture which is required to to generate success so it's been fantastic spending this time with you jason it's truly been a, a great great um interview we've enjoyed having you on the show and uh, yeah I'm, I'm sure our listeners and our viewers took lots from it today so thank you so much for joining us well i hope they did and it's been a fantastic pleasure meeting both of you, Simon and Ali, and thank you for the opportunity to spend some time together and share the journey. Oh, Jason, it's been absolutely fantastic. I've loved every minute of it. Um, yeah, I think, you know, how Simon summed up there, you know, the scientific approach to go to market that you've been able to adapt, you know, throughout your entire career has really enabled you to, you know, achieve in the trajectory of your career to get you to where you are today. So, um, yeah, it's absolutely fascinating and ridiculously inspirational. So, yeah, thank you so much for, for sharing in your journey. Um, but to all of our listeners, um, please do like and subscribe to our various channels at YouTube, iTunes and Spotify. Don't forget to give some comments, likes um, and share amongst your community. Thanks ever so much. And we look forward to welcoming you back soon. Take care.